Episode four. So welcome to Detroit Strange. Yeah, that's Jessica. That's Alex. We're here to tell you ooky spooky things. Yes. In the city, the great city of Detroit. Yes. Day twelve, you're French. Yeah. So how was your day today? Um, I mean it was a Monday, so Monday. The Greek yogurt stain on the carpet by my desk is going nowhere. I like brought like a Greek yogurt based ranch dip with some vegetables to work. And I was really sad. I got a meeting with my boss. I'm like, I'm going to finish these now. And I took a swipe and then immediately went face down on the carpet next to my <gasps> desk. Oh, no. And I like, tried to clean it up. And I was like, oh, it's good. And then I came in the next day. And it's just like this big, just like white stain. Ooh. Like probably like the size of like like a CD. That's a large stain. I know. I'm also not going to do anything about it. Oh, I wouldn't. I Cause mean... Especially because we're moving buildings soon. We're oh. moving downtown. You're fine. You're yeah. Fine. Whoever gets that desk nest, I'm sorry about the giant, mysterious white stain. <laughs> Oops. Wow. Okay. How about you? Uh, my day was pretty uneventful. I mean, it was all rainy and stuff today, so uh, work was very slow for me. And then I had to let my roommate into the house because she left her keys in an Uber, as one Classic. does. Yes. Relatable. And then... Honestly, I might have kind of finished up my story for today. Yeah. Yeah. Was a, I mean, I had most I was, of it. But... I was doing, yeah. I did the same thing. I was reviewing mine today. Yeah. Going, straightening my thoughts out. I found some, some extra content, as yeah. it were, for today. So, yeah. But a good day overall. And now we're here. Yeah. I mean, I kind of like a rainy day. I, I stand a rainy day. I, I do like a rainy day. I appreciate the cozy factor of a rainy day. It's really cozy, and I think also I've just been spoiled because, like, I used to work a job that was weather-based oh, okay. when I was mm-hmm. a lifeguard. Yeah. And so on rainy days, when nobody, like, especially, like, if it started thundering, the pool would be closed 20 minutes for each thunderbolt or thunder burst, and then if it was lightning, it was an hour, nobody could be there. So we'd always be like, lightning, lightning, lightning. Because then we'd close, <laughs> and then, but the guards, we didn't stay there, so we'd just go in the guard room, and, like, we had board games, and we'd just, like, chill and hang out. We had a Save by the Bell board game. <gasps> Ooh, that's fun. I bought a Saved by the Bell board game for my friends a few years ago, but I think it was like a new oh, wow. one. Yeah. It was a lot of fun, though. And then my was friends it the college and I. Years? It was not. But my friends and I realized, and these were like high school friends of mine. Mm-hmm. We were playing it. I bought it for one of them for Christmas. And I was like, well, okay, I'm going to be Jesse, of course, because Jessica. Yeah. And then we realized that my other two friends playing with me were Kelly and Lisa. We all had friggin' Saved by the Bell names. Oh, my God. We were really close in high school, and we didn't realize it until, until over then. a decade later. Like, that's how did we not realize that? I didn't watch it when it was on because, like, I was too young when it was on. I don't think anybody really watched it when it was on. It was all about the syndicate. True. That's, like, I remember watching on TVS, like, especially mm-hmm. I was babysitting at the time, and, like, I was perfect age for it then. And, like, the kid I'd watch, he'd be like, I don't know, the room plays Xbox or some shit. And I'd be like, I'm going to s- kind of sleep and also watch Save the Bell on your couch. Sounds like a good job. Yeah. Well, shall we uh, cheers to episode four right now while we cheers. drink our uh, bee's I knees? I haven't tried the bee's knees yet. I want, yeah, I want to be my first sip to be okay. on the microphone. Oh, hello. So, yes, this is a Prohibition era drink. It's got some gin in it. Oh, yeah. Some honey. You can taste the Prohibition. You can taste the Prohibition in there. 
I feel like Prohibition drinks are always just kind of like strong, but they have some alternative flavor. Mm-hmm. You know, you were making gin in bathtubs and shit back then. You know? Well, I was also realizing Prohibition drinks are all very fancy, which is interesting because like... I wonder what they drank before Prohibition drinks, you know? I feel like it was beer. Like, I don't know why, but I just feel like it was beer. And then I feel like Prohibition happened and they were like, we need to get some real liquor up in here. We got to yeah. sneak in. We got to get something strong. I get that. So, yeah, but, and then it was all about, like, like good flavors and stuff. I don't know. It's it's interesting that it went, I don't know that it wasn't fancy before, but Prohibition things were, like, fancy. I get that. Yeah. And I respect that. Yeah. Clink the microphone. That's okay. Clink, clink away. So, are you ready for a story? Always. Okay. Well, today I'm going to tell you about the Detroit occult murders. Ooh. Have you heard of them before? I have not. Not at all. Okay, well, you are in for quite the ride. There is a lot of levels to this thing. So firstly, I would like a disclaimer first. If I use the word voodoo, it doesn't necessarily mean voodoo because that's not a correct word for a lot of times it is used in the story due to what the media was like at the time when the stories took place. I can imagine. Um, I remember when I went to New Orleans and like remember like learning and talking about voodoo a little bit when I went to a couple of the museums. I know voodoo is an interesting topic. It's very interesting, but like definitely people are like getting it wrong. Oh yeah, and these these again. This actually reminds me a little bit of your Rosera story in the fact that like the media kind of ran some certain ways with this. It's not as strong as it was in your story, but the media definitely had some effects on this situation. One of them being you using the word voodoo for like a placeholder, basically for things they didn't understand. That makes oh, sense? yes, the voodoo. Yes. So, and another little bit of information about the occult. So, basically, the occult is, like, the knowledge of hidden or the knowledge of the paranormal. And it basically describes a belief system that doesn't fit into religion or science. So, it's a very broad term. You know, a lot of times now we we associate it with, like, dealings with the devil or, like, Ouija boards and stuff like that. But it's a very, very broad term. Because, again, it just has to do with, like, thinking you know a secret about the unseen, basically. That's um, good to know because I always kind of wondered what the difference between, like, cult and occult was like mm-hmm. that's good to know yeah oh we're gonna talk about both in this first of all we're gonna talk about st Aubin street so that might be a street that you've heard of before i've definitely heard of it but i can't i couldn't tell you where it was it's over by the eastern market area of detroit yes so we're going back to 1929 which is i didn't realize My favorite year. oh it's a great year just before that stock market crash. Yeah. So the auto industry, again, is starting to take off. Many immigrants are coming into the city with the American dream of factory jobs, of you know, being their way to pave their future. And as I mentioned in a previous episode, the city's population had boomed very much between 1910 and the end of the 20s, going from about 285,000 residents to about 1.5 million. So a lot of changes here. I remember last episode or the episode two you're like 285 i thought you meant 285 people I'm like that's so few people how did it grow i'm like oh she meant thousands of people so i well i had typed 285 that was again not factual yeah um that's some voodoo that's some voodoo right there for sure so we're gonna go to july 3rd a man named vincent elias has just gone to a house located at 3587 st Aubin street which is now an unoccupied lot as the home was demolished a few years ago i have a little photo of that too if you'd like to see it at all um i mean it looks like a lot with nothing on it that's that's this right here i can confirm yes so when he uh entered the house he was going there to discuss a real estate deal around 10 30 a.m he walked into the house and instead discovered six bodies Almost every homicide division officer in the city was dispatched immediately to the scene, as 
they should have been. Uh, when police entered, they found a body of Benny Evangelista, who was about 43 years old, seated behind his desk. His hands had been folded neatly in his lap as if he was praying, and his head was laying on the floor next to his feet. So he's decapitated. Oh, shit. Around his head were three large frame photographs of a child in a coffin. Same child, same coffin. This was later discovered to be an image of Benny's son who had died years prior. And when they went upstairs, they found his wife, Santina Evangelista, who was 36, and their four children, Mario, who was 18 months, Angelina, who was seven, Margaret, who was five, and Jean, who was four all slain. Santina was in bed with Mario, the 18-month-year-old. Her head had been severed, mostly severed, and his skull had been crushed in. It's a very brutal thing. Yeah. Across the hall, the other three children were found all slaughtered in their beds. We don't need to go into the details. I didn't look them up because this was already a lot of information that was pretty heavy. Yeah. All the wounds were appeared to be caused by an axe. So the only survivor was the dog, who had disappeared because he escaped, as he should have, and turned up in a woman's yard. Once she learned who the previous owners were, though, she said, nah, don't want that dog. I could not find out what happened to this dog. Oh. I know, and I've been pretty bummed since. So a little bit of background about Evangelista and how he ended up here. So he was born Benjamino Evangelista uh, in Naples, Italy in 1885, and he was better known as Benny. In 1904, Benny traveled to America and eventually Americanized his last name to Evangelis. Benny and his brother settled together in Philadelphia, but they had a falling out due to Benny starting to have mystic visions, and he started to proclaim himself as the divine prophet, as one does. I mean, if I could count the times, I've declared that I was a divine prophet. Mm-hmm. So this did not align with their Catholic upbringing, if you can imagine. And basically his brother said, bye-bye, and sent him to York, Pennsylvania to work on the, a railroad construction crew. Is that where they make the, the peppermint patties? Possibly. I mean, there's Hershey, we Pennsylvania, should... and there's York, Pennsylvania. I wonder. Next episode. Producer Patty. Yeah. If you want to look that up. So there Benny met a man named, and I might get some of these Italian names wrong. I apologize. As Aurelius, with four vowels in their last name, I'll correct you. Oh, thanks. Uh, Aurelius Angelino, another immigrant from Naples. They became very good friends. And as good friends do, began to dabble in the occult. So they started looking into things of the occult. You know, normal bestie activities. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Me and Jen have definitely talked about getting like a Ouija board, doing a seance. And I told her I would do a Ouija board if we got it like five below. Because five below has Ouija boards sometimes. Yeah, that checks out. Yeah. I mean, Hasbro makes them, I'm pretty sure. Like Hasbro makes Oh, yeah. No, I had one as a kid. I don't know why I had one as a kid, by the way. I did not like really know anything about it. It's weird that like people let it fly as long as it did. Like, you you know, the Ouija board started as like a parlor game. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 No, it was never meant to be anything that it kind of became. It's got a lot. That would be an interesting history, actually. Look up the history of the Ouija board. Yeah. I know it's it got its name from the word yes in both French and German. We uh. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So it's the yes, yes board. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> so basically, uh, they're dabbling around in this. And then in 1919, so this is about 15 years after he's arrived to America, his new friend Angelino snapped and attacked his family with an axe, killing his two children. Oh, my God. Yes. So at this point, Benny was like, oh, no, this is this is not for me. Angelina, was conv- his friend, was convicted and sent to prison for the criminally insane. And Benny had some feelings about it. So he decided to move to Detroit to get away from that whole situation. By so, the new start. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Fresh start. So he gets here. He starts working in carpentry because he had some you know, knowledge of that from before. And then he was prosperous enough to basically invest in real estate. And he became a re- landlord and realtor. He became actually pretty successful doing that. He eventually met his wife, Santina, and they were married and got settled into married life. Once he was settled, though, he began to pursue. What do you think he began to pursue? 
Um, the turkey co- cooking. Yes. And the occult. Oh, that yes, of yes. course. And he decided he had to have a side job. He couldn't just do the real estate thing. So he supplemented his income by selling herbs, hexes, spiritual remedies, and he would also perform chants, dances, and animal sacrifices for the right price to either cure or curse somebody. His favorite thing to do was uh, psychic healings for a fee of $10, which is around $145 today, or about two days on the assembly line back then. So like two days wage for your average worker. They all dance for much less than that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So this proved to be somewhat lucrative. And so he moved his children and his wife, because he was a very loving man of them apparently, into a large house on St. Aubin and Mac. So it's almost at the intersection right there. The house had a wide front porch, green paint, and was very comfortable for them. So they were pretty happy and stoked about it. He then set up in the basement what he called the Great Celestial Planet Exhibition. So basically, you could see this from the corners of the two streets, Mac and St. Aubin, if you stared and kind of crouched down and looked in the right window. And it was supposedly using paper mache wires and wood and possibly some puppets and dolls because I have a photo of some puppets and dolls that I know were in his basement, which you can look at right here. And it was his version of the universe. Oh my God, no thank you. Yeah, they're creepy, right? And there was an electric eye of some sort hanging in the middle of this whole thing. Electric eye? What does that mean? I could not find a description of that anywhere. I was very curious because we're talking 1929, so I don't don't know what would have been available to create an electric eye, but there was some sort of... In place of the sun, there was an electric eye. I feel that... I feel like in those times it must have meant like a light bulb, but like electric eye also just kind of sounds like an old timey word for like, like if someone from like the 1920s came mm-hmm. to present day and saw a security camera, electric eye. See to me. Oh, I can, yeah, I can see that. That's what I, my, that was my first thought. I immediately went Lord of Rings. I was like that damn bitch up on that mountain staring down at everybody. That was the electric eye I thought of. I don't know why. So <laughs> anyway, with this great thing. Uh, so that was the nice part of the basement. The friendly part of the basement. So what couldn't be seen was the chamber where Benny would practice his rituals. So in this room, he would create spells, hexes, and potions that he would then sell to people. He performed magic using a crude altar along with knives, bottles, and jars. As one, again, does. He even self-published his own book. So he wrote and published I'm glad you could self-publish back then without Amazon. I know, right? His book was called The Oldest History of the World Discovered by Occult Science in Detroit, Michigan. Rolls off the tongue, right? Is this a book we can still find? I couldn't see it online, but I didn't do that much of a search. I did like a very cursory, like, eh. Now, the greatest owner of his book was himself. So he also had many copies of this book down in that hidden room. Uh, He created the book through a series of nightly trances that he started performing in 1906, so shortly after moving here. He had plans to release three more books in this series that relayed previously unknown information that he had received from God. Benny would claim to receive most of his visions from 12 to 3 a.m., so around the witching hour. Uh, So it's possible that's why he was sitting at his desk when the murders actually took place. Now, when he says God, does he mean like the Christian God or just like some kind of deity? Well, you want to hear an excerpt from this book? Yes. On this new earth, the last one was created by God, the Father Celestial, and the great prophet Miel. We call it today the Great Union Federation of America. I am with the power of God and I respect this nation. So I think he meant... Some new version of God is what it sounds like to me. The celestial. God the Father celestial, as he called it there. You're staring very. <laughs> I'm just, this sounds familiar. I mean. To like Mormonism. You know what I mean? Because you read those golden oh, plates out of the hat. Yeah. I mean. I mean, I've learned this from a South Park episode, so I'm not going to pretend I'm an expert. <laughs> 
but just like some crazy dude just yeah. decided that he he could heard he, some things heard from god mm-hmm. yeah so yeah. okay so he's dabbling mm. in a lot of stuff probably not not he's probably making some uh people who don't appreciate his work along the way so again july 30 is found july 4th the detroit free press broke the story citing the findings inside the house uh quoting several pieces of women's undergarments each tagged with the name of its owner police point out reveal the so-called mystic indulged in practices of voodooism or devil worship such garments voodooism has it can lead to the finding of a missing person when they are properly handled by one versed in the mystic arts of that belief so basically we're like this guy's doing voodoo he's got these ladies garments they got names on it He's trying to find them for people. So clearly rumors began to spread connecting the awful violent murders to his dealings with the occult. So police failed when it came to keeping reporters and onlookers away from the scene. And thus all the evidence was mostly contaminated. They had very little evidence to go off of. Only one piece was kept intact a bloody fingerprint on a doorknob. So most of the neighbors were also new immigrants from Sicily and very reluctant to talk to law enforcement officers. Uh, they were I don't unab- know nothing about nothing. Exactly. They were unable to get a single statement from any of them. Benny had lots of trinkets and records of having done many rituals for people over the years. So those were all like, you know, throughout his house. But everybody they talked to seemed to deny that they had any knowledge when they were questioned. They said they didn't know who he was. Uh, they had never met him in the first place. Nobody wanted to admit to paying a guy to do rituals or any kind of spells for them. Which I get. Yeah. So the police basically had this one thumbprint to come up with. So they... Had to come up with some theories. So the and first theory, fingerprint theory, or fingerprint technology was not. Yeah, exactly. Great back then. No, 1929. We don't have. They have records, but like you have to really have had to well, do you can't, something. Like, compare them as quickly. Like yeah. you'd have to like someone be sitting there with like two pictures of a fingerprint. Like mm, looks similar, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah, exactly. So. That's all they had. The first Siri used um, several threatening notes found in the house by someone who referred to themselves as La Mano Nera, or Black Hand, which was a criminal group composed of Italian criminals that attacked wealthy Italian immigrants. Uh, One note was from about six months prior, and it said, this is your last chance. Sounds pretty ominous to me. The only thing with this is, by 1929, this group was mostly defunct, uh, and it evolved into more organized crime. Uh, dealing mostly with, you know, things of like booze, booze basically. Yeah. yeah, I was gonna say it's prohibition. They were they they were smuggling booze, so they didn't give a crap about extortion anymore at this point. They were just about the liquor. So whoever was writing the notes was mostly an amateur looking to try and make some easy extortion money using their name, and probably failed. Mm-hmm. So the police were like, "Yeah, that's probably not it." The second theory: a 42 year old man named Umberto Tescio. I think, um, had visited the evangelist home on July 2nd. He was there to make a final payment on a home that he had bought from him. Mm-hmm. Tescio brought his friend Angelo Dipoli, sorry, Dipoli, uh, and police found an axe and a f- pair of very clean work boots in the barn behind the boarding house where the two gentlemen live. Angelo Dipoli was also discovered with a blood-covered knife, so that doesn't look too good for him. The two men claimed to know nothing of the murders and stated that nothing unusual happened during their visit, and they had gone out drinking after dropping off the payment. Again, this is prohibition, so the fact that they're using drinking as their alibi... Yeah, yeah. it kind of... <laughs> it, it holds weight and it doesn't. Yeah, exactly. So uh, newspapers, who were pretty racist against Italian immigrants at the time, cast their suspicion on Tessio, and they wrote up stories that three months prior to the massacre, Tessio had knifed his brother-in-law to death in an argument but had escaped prosecution in a very unclear way so with no physical evidence and no confession they had to let them go as their prints did not match uh Tashio died five years later 
So this is a side theory. This one's kind of silly, but another theory for a second was that a tenant was suspected later as he was accused after his death by his ex-wife, but a thumbprint was not matched. She was just pissed off at her ex-husband. So I mean... Uh, <laughs> It happens. Yeah, yeah. I've heard worse things. So a third theory is in 1923, Benny's friend Aurelius, you remember the crazy dude from uh, Pennsylvania who axed his kids? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, he escaped from the facility he was serving time in and was never seen from again, ever. Ooh. Yes. So there was suspicion they had possibly fled to Detroit to set up shop in the room in Benny's basement. There's no record, though, of him anywhere. And so there's no thumbprint of him either. So That's okay, spooky. Yeah. So a fourth theory mentioned that the night before the murders, Evangelist had made a call to the watchman of a house that was about to be demolished. He told Matt, that man he had purchased all the salvageable material from it, and he was going to arrange for it to be picked up. So it would have been delivered that night, but the delivery man never showed. Evangelist was planning on paying the men the next day, but no money was found in the house. So who knows what happened to those delivery men as well. And they didn't have a name for these delivery men. They just had records of, like the conversation having had happened. Oh, shit. Yeah. So they really didn't know where to go from there. The funeral was held on July 6th while 3,000 residents packed the streets. Police arrested a man who was acting queerly, which excited suspicion. That was a quote. Mm -hmm. uh, but released him shortly afterwards. I love that queer used to be just like, they're acting kind of queer. And it was kind of like, oh, they're kind of weird. Like off offsetting or what? Yeah. Yeah. My it mom, she's like, you know, LGBTQ, like sometimes accused or queer, questioning, mm -hmm. whatever. She's like, I don't like that word. I'm like, well, mom, it's kind of just like an umbrella term. She's like, well, I don't like it. I'm like, okay, mom, let me call up Glad and tell him real quick that my mom doesn't like queer so they can stop using it. <laughs> Aww. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, so many claim that the land where this took place is haunted now. There's been reports of a headless man seen wandering around, disembodied voices, and screams have all been witnessed. But since the house has been torn down, I think that that's kind of lessened a little bit now. This is not the end of the story. You want to go a little deeper? Honey, always. Okay, cool. So we were in 1929. Now we're going to go to 1932. It's all going to come back together, I promise you. It's all coming back. It's all coming back to me now. Yes. That's all the rights we can afford. So we're going to move on. Yes. Uh, but when I say it's all going to come back, I mean, there's going to be some loose threads at the end. So yeah. this, this is a warning. This is not going to get tied up pretty. So in 1932, the depression is in full swing. It's not looking good for immigrants or for African Americans. And this is where Robert Harris enters our story. Robert was a black man from Tennessee who arrived to Detroit just a couple months after the stock market crash in October of 29. So this is less than a year after the murders of the evangelist family. Detroit's looking a little bit different for Robert Harris than it looked for them, the evangelist family. Uh, he turned to religion and fell in with the Order of Islam, which later became known as the Nation of Islam, led by W.D. Fard, F-A-R-D. That's going to be important. I don't know him, but I do know W.D. Fardy. Yeah, <laughs> It served as hope for many in the black community as it provided secret meeting places and halls and temples where they referred to everything around them as the wilderness of North America. So it was like a place to give just hope of coming together as a community and whatnot. Okay. So Robert Harris was 44 years old and the grandson of former slaves. Detroit's employment when he got here was around 30%. So again, after the crash. Damn, that's low. Mm -hmm. So that's when he joined the group. And at this time, James Smith was a man who was living in Robert's house as it was a boarding house at 1429 Dubois. This was the heart of the Black Bottom neighborhood and the only about a few blocks away from where the evangelist home was. So Harris went on to confess that one day he brought Smith 
into the front room with him, so of his house, one morning, November 1932, where he, his wife and kids, so this is again Harris's wife and kids, are in the room with them as well. And they were sitting, waiting, as he had commanded them, literally commanded them to do. He was a very strict, hard-fisted man. He claimed Smith to be a willing sacrifice. Yes, I just said sacrifice, so that's where this is going. He had a altar in the room, and basically Smith stretched his arms up and looked up, and at noon, Harris plunged a knife into Smith's heart and then followed by crushing in his skull with an axle from an automobile just to quiet him. That was a quote. Oh, my God. Yes. Harris justified murdering Smith using the words, quote, the ninth hour of the 20th day has come Sunday. It was predestined 1,500 years ago that at that hour I must make a human sacrifice to my gods. It must not be a member of the Order of Islam, but some stranger, the first person I met after leaving my home. Which is weird because this guy lived in his home, so it's not the first person he met after leaving his home. But that was his justification. So police were called to the scene. They found an 8-inch knife stuck all the way into Smith's heart so that only the handle was showing. And so they took Harris in, who was using the name Robert Kirian, as applied by him, to him by the Order of Islam. And they took him into custody and had a difficult time getting him to comply with being fingerprinted from his left hand. Right hand, no problem. Left hand, big problem. He claimed, my right hand belongs to everyone, but my left hand belonged to the king. That's suspicious. Yes. Once he calmed down a bit, um, he claimed that Smith, the man living with him, was a member of the same cult as him, using the word cult in this case. I'm not trying to say that that was a cult of any sort, but this is the verbiage used at the time. He went on to say that at first Smith had to be reticent to be slaughtered, but agreed after being convinced that he was a sacrifice and he become the savior of the world and go straight to heaven. So apparently Harris was like, nope, you'll be a sacrifice. It'll be great. You're going to go to heaven. And then Smith was just... I would have loved to be sitting in that conversation. I know. Exactly. So... Like, hey, we're going to kill you, but like, uh, for the good of the world, and you'll go straight to heaven. All right, dude. Yeah, okay. Yeah, sounds, sounds good. good. Yeah, cool. Well, here's the thing. He actually did say... Well, in his statement, he said, just before he killed Smith, he said, hey, do you want to still be killed? And advised him to get on the altar just before the stroke of noon. So his defense was that he asked the guy if he wanted to be killed, and then the guy went on the altar, like, willingly. So, um... That still doesn't make it okay. Yeah. Also, though, police found a slip of printed paper in his house, either from a book or magazine of some sort, instructing, quote-unquote, the unbeliever must be stabbed through the heart. So there's also some temptation to say that maybe Smith did not believe the same things as Harris, and that was a motivation. So Harris also complained... Not complained. He claimed that his wife and children, who he considered to be disciples they were his disciples, looked unwillingly, but his wife made the statement to police that they had been forced to do so under the threat of death. So no charges were filed against Queen Bertha Harris. Police tried to make a connection then, rightfully so, between the evangelist murders and Robert Harris as they were embarrassed by their previous shortcomings at St. Aubin's since they had like let people go into the house and basically had no evidence. That's why they couldn't find anybody. Yeah. But the prince didn't match Harris either, and he claimed... Well, at one point he claimed or denied knowing anything about it. And at another time he confessed to that murder. But it was ultimately concluded that he didn't murder them. Mm-hmm. So when he threatened, oh, this is the best. When he went in front of the judge, he claimed to be, sorry, the king there was, or he claimed to be the king and he wouldn't follow any of the judge's requests. So specifically, like the judge was like, remove your hat and he wouldn't do it, which that could be for religious reasons. So I kind of get it. But he was just giving the judge a hard time, basically. Mm-hmm. And he claimed to have killed Smith because, quote unquote, it's a dumb civilization. But I give my children a break because I'm a lover of children well i've got to go now and that's when he started to leave and tried to 
grab a box of rubber bands from the desk of the clerk, which he then began to stuff in his pocket. Why was he trying to steal rubber bands? Who knows? It doesn't make much sense. So obviously a bailiff stopped him and took the rubber bands back and led him to a prison cell. Here's the crazy thing. He was released sometime in the 1960s and returned to the great city of Detroit to live out the rest of his life. What? Yeah. Yep. He, he was still old... those rubber bands. He was guilty. <laughs> so we're going to go back to W.D. Fard now for a second. So the, the man who was teaching him things, supposedly. We're going to visit, actually, Wally Dodd Ford, a.k.a. W.D. Fard Mohammed, a.k.a. Professor Fard, a.k.a. Fard Mohammed, a.k.a. W.D. Fard. So remember him, the leader of the Order of Islam, who some people thought was a cult at the time and due to the media being the media, they were also associated with voodooism at some certain points. He was quickly taken out of the group's headquarters as soon as this murder happened, along with his secretary, Ugan Ali, at 304. 304- 3408 Hastings for questioning. Newspapers claimed a crowd of nearly 500 members of their group then uh, invaded the police headquarters because they had raided their temple mm-hmm. and in protest of the questioning of these two. After their demands were not met, though, those 500 people went, all right, and went home. So when Fard was asked who he was in his answer, he said, I am the supreme being on earth. So another person who thinks they are of a, another world. So you know nothing big. When questioned, oh, when questioned about Harris murdering Smith, he claimed that Harris had misunderstood his teachings. So he's like, nah, that guy didn't, didn't get what we were doing. Both Fard and his secretary were sent to the psychopathic ward of the Detroit Receiving Hospital for observation, but they were also both released from there. Uga and his secretary went on to talk about their teachings, stating, our fundamental purpose is to uplift our own people. Members are taught not to eat certain foods, to employ their time usefully, and by their efforts, the world can be rid of evil by 1934. So, you know, two years. <laughs> from now. He also stated that many people avoided Harris because of the wild things he sometimes said. Mm. So he was kind of cast as an outsider. They stated that sacrificial rites were not part of their practices. So he was doing something under their name, but not really associated with them. Right. So Harris's brother, Edward, also spoke to the police and spoke of him, quote unquote, acting queerly. There's that word again. In the last few weeks, preaching a lot and stopping people in the streets. So he had become very impassioned about his beliefs, but they were not probably under the order of Islam. So, but here's the weird thing about Mr. Fard. When the fingerprints were compared with a former California prison inmate named Wally Dodd Ford, they were a match. So the leader of the order of Islam in Detroit at that time had a criminal history out in California. So years later in the 50s, after some other suspicious activities, it was discovered by an FBI investigation on his World War I draft card. He claimed he was born in 1893 in Afghanistan. But in 1920, on a census, he listed his birthplace as New Zealand. And in another document, he listed that he was born in Portland, Oregon. So What a time for documentation. I know. Some shady stuff is going on, though, right? Yeah. So in California, he served three years in San Quentin for violating narcotic laws. When Wally Dodd Ford disappeared until police ran his fingerprints under this investigation, this particular one with Robert Harris. Mm -hmm. After investigation, it was found that he had gone to Chicago after being released from San Quentin. Chicago records showed that he was involved in an internal power struggle with a group known as the Moorish Science Temple. The leader of that Uh group... Noble Drew Ali was found dead in his home while waiting a trial for the murder of another leader, Sheik Claude Green. I don't know if you're noticing a pattern here. At this time, Ford, or Fard, because now he has a billion names, claimed to be the reincarnation of Noble Drew Ali and attempted to rule the Moorish Science Temple. Then, the stock market crashed, and Fard claimed it to be a punishment to the world for them not accepting his messianic proclamation. So what did he do? 
fled to Detroit. As one does. Yes. So he started selling silks and baubles to people and began to sell them also basically hope and told them that he'd give them secrets to like a better life and to help them have redemption and power without the help of a white man. Soon after, he became the leader of the Order of Islam. Mm -hmm. That's where that was born from. So it's not clear what happened to him after this because, guess what? He fled Detroit under pressure from those police after this investigation. But... It's possible that he was murdered by the hands of his successor, Elijah Poole, uh, who also became a mentor to Malcolm X later on. But a former lover claimed that he just returned to New Zealand. So basically, he had about 17 different personalities. But, like, he returned to New Zealand, but was he even from New Zealand? He said, like, 12 different places. Exactly. So... Shade. Who knows what happened? So basically, in the 20s, you could do what you wanted and then just flee somewhere else and everything would be kosher. Can you, like, that's, there's no way that's possible these days because, like, uh, the age of digital. Yeah, no, we can, I mean, people can be, tra- I mean, there are people who still try to right do now. stuff, but they're, yeah, they're, yeah. they're always tracking us. But yeah, so that is the weird twisting history of the Detroit occult murders, starting with the Evangelista family and ending with W.D. Fard. That's, bizarre i like Mm -hmm. i can't well the thing that it's i mean it's a cold case to this day this is over 80 years later i mean like over 90 years actually at this point in time and the the ones that happened on um same oven they still don't have any clue who did it and it was such like a gruesome murder the whole thing with the child coffin yeah photos at his feet and his head at his feet and just it was very like calculated so it's very very strange well, that just reminds me. Have you ever seen The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo? I haven't. It's honestly one of my favorite movies, which is weird. It's a weird favorite movie to have. I'm talking about the English version. I haven't seen the Swedish one all the way through because I made the poor choice of trying to watch it like two in the morning. Oh, that's hard to do to with like a, a sub- real, like a, yeah. Yeah, like a movie with subtitles mm-hmm. in a language that's very unfamiliar. Not yeah. more. I'm learning Swedish right now, actually. But yeah, there's just like weird, very specific murders in that movie. Oh, based off Bible passages. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. So it kind of was giving me that vibe. The story was giving me like those kind of vibes where it's just kind of like, like, oh, like the Bible said you could do this and sacrifice this person here as long mm-hmm. as you do it at this time. Just like very specific conditions into where murder is okay see that's why i mean their theories aren't really even that tight but that's why out of all of their theories i think it's the uh is the former person aurelius that mm-hmm. he had met yeah um just because i mean that guy disappeared from prison and then nobody saw from him again right like that's totally the most plausible i guess yeah i mean the other one with the two guys who maybe like who were uh tenants or whatever in his building that one's possible too but i really it I, re- I really like Aurelius for this. Yeah. <laughs> I'll speak in the police lingo. Agreed. <laughs> or detective lingo. Yeah. But yeah, but oh, that's crazy. And the weird thing is, too, there's even more like situations that have happened on that street. Obviously, it's Detroit has a long history and stuff. Yeah. But it's just weird that all that was within a short time period. So that's why everybody was like kind of looking to it all being the occult, even though those were two very different situations. And I totally get it. And I feel like just like back then, just things didn't move as fast as they do now. So I feel like so many things happening in the same time period meant more back then than now. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Well, and like one of the biggest things in this one too, I think because the police kind of like goofed up on the first one and like we're letting people in the house and stuff. Cause I imagine crime scenes weren't as tightly like kept under wraps. And I don't think like, I don't think they had ever experienced like a massacre in a house like that of like of the whole family or if they right, had it been a while. Easy to be like, Hey, don't touch any of this or don't 
come in here right now. But you hear those stories sometimes, like True. especially oh, like totally. in older cases. And so I think that they felt so bad about it that they wanted to find a re- you know what I mean? They wanted to create that story arc of like why did this happen? Who did it? Because they they wanted to find the answers. Right. And they didn't leave themselves with much, you know, chance for it. So I think that that's another reason these all got kind of like put up together. Also, in one account, I did read that Robert Harris admitted to the murder of the uh, evangelist family, but then like took it back and said he didn't really even know about it later. So it was also before he was in Detroit. So that's why I think it was kind of a weird connection. Yeah. But yeah. So yeah, that's the Detroit occult murders. That's crazy. Because I know Detroit has a history, but like you don't really ever hear about the occult side of things really. No. I mean, I don't think there was like a huge, huge following. I mean, I think everywhere there was going to be somebody, but... True. You just don't really think about it unless like there's like a really prominent story. And like this is an interesting story, but it's not super prominent in Detroit. When you talk about Detroit, you don't mm-hmm. really think about like uh, occult murders or... Yeah. You know. Yeah, for sure. Definitely not voodoo. You know, not a lot. I associate yeah. voodoo with New Orleans. I, well, yeah, I think most people do. But I mean, things can exist anywhere that people want them to, too. So... True. They're both French cities. Mm, mm-hmm. There is actually a stronger connection there that I would have even thought about. Yeah. Interesting. But again, in this story too, voodoo and the occult were like true used interchangeably like... in a lot of things I read, which I think that's just like the treatment of like media back then. Yeah. Um, because I think you had to kind of clasp on like what you, what they could at the time. Cause they didn't have the, you know, we have advantages today of being able to know what somebody's. It's so much easier to fact check. these. Yes. Days. Thank you. That's what I'm exactly trying to say. That was much more eloquent than, it, than where I was going with it. But yeah. So uh, let's change it up a bit. Do you have two truths and a lie for me? Yes. Yes. Uh, I thought of them. Because recently I've been saying there's three things I don't fuck with. Oh, okay. And not like I'm afraid of it or anything. There's just things I'm like not interested in, have no like whatever. And so the three things I don't fuck with. I don't fuck with space. I don't fuck with magic. And I don't fuck with superheroes. I'm thinking. So wait, the look. Okay, so I'm choosing the one that you do fuck with. Yeah. The one that I'm, like, here for. Space. False. The three things I don't fuck with. Space, superheroes, and dinosaurs. Oh, man. Don't fuck with any of those. I knew it was going to be... I knew superheroes you don't fuck with. uh, I just got that vibe before. The last superhero movie I think I saw was Deadpool. And I didn't hate it. I like I that's the last one I saw that I liked. And then the rest of them I'm just like, oh my god, I don't need to see Avengers 14 where like Thor opens a jar of pickles he's been working on for a long time and what's her name? Scarlett Johansson's character, she's No spoilers. She gets something. I don't okay, know. Okay, there we go. I, yeah, I I couldn't tell you anything, but like I just, me and Jen were talking about this weekend. <laughs> and I'm glad that one of us likes superheroes so we don't lose our whole audience, but like I love superheroes. Give me MCU. Oh, yeah. There's just too much right now. There's too much. I get it. I mean, like... I'm too overwhelmed. I don't want to handle it. I I won't. I think you'll have a break now that Endgame's done. I mean, there'll still be movies, but it won't be as... True. I I didn't see Wonder Woman. I didn't see the Black Panther movie. I hear those are good. And, like, those ones would be ones I'd actually see because it's not just, like, white man, let me do white man things, Mm -hmm. laser beams. Yeah. No, I get that. I got that totally. Also, fuck Chris Pratt. Sorry. I might edit that out. That's that's a harsh hot take. (laughs) It's a very hot take. But, like, (laughs) I think it's just been exacerbated by the fact that he's, like, part of that weird church. Wait, what? He's, like, how this... Weird LA church. He's like, they're super accepting my divorce, but is it not Scientology? Because that's the only. It's not Scientology. It's like some weird like Sun Hill or something like that. Sounds pleasant, but it's really anti-gay. That sounds like a old person retirement community. Yeah, 
It's not that name, but it's something like that, where it's like Sun Hill or like Pleasant Valley Church Community. I feel very uncomfortable by this information. Yeah, I was talking to somebody else about this recently, and like, like I'm like, I don't like Chris Pratt. And they're like, really? I'm like, yeah, especially since like learning about that weird church thing. He's like, mm, you're about to ruin Chris Pratt for me, aren't you? And I'm like, mm, I won't say anything else. You look it up if you want to. I think you just ruined him for me. Yeah, sorry. It's all right. I mean, knowledge is power. Yeah. Luckily, he's not in the newer movie that much, so. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I don't know if that's a spoiler. I don't know. By the time this comes out, if you haven't seen Adventures and Adventures, Adventures, <laughs> if you haven't seen like the movie with twelve thousand superheroes, they all get twelve lines each, and it's like Iron Man, Captain America, sexual tension, woman, <laughs> she does things. <laughs> Actually, there really is a nice shout out to ladies in it. Okay. Mm-hmm. And also, Captain Marvel kicks fucking ass. She the best. See, I don't get how is there a Captain Marvel. That's just like, that's breaking the fourth wall. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yes and no. <laughs> I'm just, I She's also, great. I just feel like I hate that there's so many of them. Hey, they can have a community. It's just their community. Fair. Okay. You have communities. You have several communities, I'm sure. Oh, yes. I keep them all in a jar. <laughs> Well, that's just scary. Yes. <laughs> Ew. The jar has a label that says voodoo on it. Oh, no. And then the occult on the other side. Yeah. Because it's very confused about what it actually is. The jar says voodoo and the lid says occult. Oh, cool. And I sprinkle some sage on it. Cool jar, bro. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, we should probably wrap this up. That's One fun fact start. about jars real quick. Though. Oh, fine. Yes. So I had to write a trivia question about... Something inventions. I inve- the guy who invented the mason jar. His name's like John C. Mason or something like that. But like his last name is Mason, basically. And uh, he died penniless. Oh, mason jars didn't take off until after he died. That's so sad. Yeah. Also, it makes me wonder why people name their children Mason as the first name now. Yeah, I know a Mason, not personally, <laughs> but like my friend dated a Mason. Okay. Yeah. I wonder why his. Uh, I'm assuming this was a male Mason. Yes. I'm, I'm wondering why that name was chosen. Yeah. So anyway, hey, Detroit. Uh, if you want to follow us, we're on Instagram and Twitter at, at Detroit Strain. And if you're not in Detroit, you can still follow us. We like friends from all places. Yes, we'll take any friends. Follow for follow. And if you have any suggestions or any stories, especially the the ooky, spooky, creepy, wonderful, strange variety, please send them to DetroitStrange at gmail.com. We get notifications right to our phones. We'll answer them ASAP. Bing. Yeah, but uh, until then, stay strange, Detroit. This has been a production of Planet Amp Podcast, powered by Pinecast. Our theme song was created by Sax and Violence.